Hey, this is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. I'm Leah Payne. I'm a historian, author, professor, and I'm experimenting with a middle part, and it's not going well. Gen Z. I'm sorry. Mom jeans, though? I'll keep it. I think it's going fine. <laughs> my name is Brian Doak. I'm a professor and a biblical scholar, and I've been wearing my sunglasses every chance I get, indoors or outdoors, because I just love the <laughs> image it projects. This episode, we are talking about The Crown, the bingeable, soapy biopic on Netflix that traces the lives and times of the Windsors in the 20th century. The whole world right now is talking about the death of Prince Philip, the longest surviving consort in Britain's history, and we are too. It's the end of an era for our friends across the pond, and we are marking that by doing a Weird Religion episode about divinity, monarchy, etiquette rituals, and a really long marriage. And also scones. Uh, scones? Scones? <laughs> I've heard scones? it both ways. <laughs> Join us. Join us. Yeah. We're, we're still good. Okay. We're still rolling. Okay, so I have a question for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Say tomorrow, say tomorrow you discover that you are in fact the long lost oldest son of Prince Charles. I will like, I will discover William. That. William? No. Nope. No. Nope. Move out of the way, William. Nope. Wills and Kate. Well, yep. And it's actually Brian and Susan. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you I, like royalty. let's go Princess Diaries here. Would you? My daughters love Princess Diaries. Oh, that's so like sweet. crazy. I bet they it. do. Yeah. I bet they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so would you take on the role of the heir to the British throne? Yeah, I'd go for it. I think it's worth doing. <laughs> You think? Why? You know, life is short. You don't get a chance to do something amazing uh, very often. Um, I think you just got to kind of go for it. I think I think great things in life, you know, just kind of happen to you. You can't really make stuff happen. I don't believe in the bootstraps narrative. You know, you just you can do stuff, but then like you know, being born into a royal family, that's just something that happens to you. You think? Yeah. You think? I, I mean, it's just it's like fate, and so you got to do it. But no disrespect to uh, you know, to to uh, to Harry about that, but um. You know, yeah, I'd take oh, it yeah. on. Yeah, of course I would do okay, it. Would, okay. Wouldn't you do it? Wouldn't you do it? Oh, I'd have some reservations about Why? it. I what, think. what are the reservations? Well, okay. So, you know, our, to our faithful friend listeners, you weirdos, we are talking about the crown, which explores, among other things, the intense personal cost mm -hmm. of becoming a, a member of the British royalty in an era wherein the British royals don't have like a clear job outside of being a really big celebrity. <laughs> it's not ruling or anything. Well, yeah, because they don't have like, in they, my mind- They don't have a role. They don't rule anything really. Well, yeah, because ruling, like if you're going to be a ruler, you need to have at least the threat of yeah. enforcement behind that, right? Yeah. And the queen can't do anything. Right. Like she does, she doesn't really govern. I know, but you know, someone like the queen, I mean, in the crown, okay, like- I've watched, I've watched the crown. I, I mostly watch it with my wife and sometimes I do other things while we're watching. So like confession. folding laundry yes, or something confession. like that. <laughs> or, you know, sleeping and things like that. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not a bad sleeper during stuff. But my, my wife is a much bigger crown fan than I am. And we should have had her in. We should have. But, yeah. um, I don't know. I get the sense that Elizabeth, I mean, she takes it on dutifully from her father at the young, you know, at the young age with the unexpected death. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, 
And, you know, it kind of, her journey feels very heroic there. You cannot watch that and tell me that that's not a worthy journey, like at least in the way that they've produced it and shown. I mean, yes, there's sorrow and so on, but she's a hero. Don't you think? Whoa, really? Yeah. Whoa. Okay. This is interesting because I did not come away with that impression yeah, at like, all. Yeah, like, okay, consider this moment. Um, I don't really remember what season this is or what okay. the episode's called, but there's a moment where they have this like long dramatic scene where she walks down this hallway and like uh-huh. it's in this carriage and like it takes her like, that's that's a moment. And then like her sister is, is it her sister is like, all oh, like, yeah. you know, has just had a suicide Margaret, attempt. Yes. Who's like a kick in the pants. Like that's what a contrast, right? Like she's a kick in the pants, but clearly unhappy. But Elizabeth is the one who has the heroic um, wherewithal to like march that long and lonely road down to the carriage. Like I saw that as a heroic journey. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a kind of like a stoic qual, like heroism. I think that she has. There is only one queen. And now the poet laureate, Sir John Benjamin, God save the queen. In days of disillusion, however low we've been, to fire us and inspire us, God gave to us our queen. She acceded, young and dutiful, to a much-loved father's throne. Serene and kind and beautiful, she holds us as her own. And 25 years later, so sure her reign has been, that our great events are greater for the presence of our Queen. For our monarch and her people, united yet and free, let the bells from every steeple ring out I, loud. Okay, that's really interesting because I, you don't think of it. You don't think of it that way. No, you think the crown is just showing like the unending path of misery for all of these people. Well. No, this is going to be, this is going to make me sound super American. I think what the crown, the the question that just haunts me when I watch the crown, because so for those of you who haven't watched it, I mean, it was a big hit on Netflix. So I'm guessing a lot of you all have, but it traces the life and times of Queen Elizabeth from when she's a very young woman um, getting married to Prince Philip Mm. and they're very young and beautiful and then, um, you know, it goes all the way up. The last season, uh, we got to Princess Di. Right. But um, I, I think the question that kept coming back in my mind was like, what is this for? What is the monarchy for? Well, that's worth talking about. I mean, I think it's worth talking about because the monarchy, I mean, what? Okay, let's back it up. Yeah. Let's back it up and let's please, make it, let's, let's back it up and let's make it religious. Why not? What is, I'm asking you now, like, what is a monarchy for? religiously or spiritually in a society? Well, okay. I, I feel like I can talk about it's like early modern, Mm -hmm. um, depiction. Let's work our way backwards. Or do you want to go? Well, I want to start ancient because I mean, you are an expert on ancient biblical and extra biblical societies. Mm. So I, I want to hear you riff a little bit on, like the function and yeah. maybe the religious function of yeah. a monarch in the ancient world. Well, I think in the ancient world, like from a very primal perspective, and we could argue indeed about whether this is still true of our politicians right. today in some way, but why do you need a king? Why do you need a queen? I guess mostly there were kings in the ancient world, although you had a couple of queens. Yeah, yeah, Candace. Uh, or, or even a queen in Egypt who had to dress up like a man in order to have, oh, to have the role. Oh, that's super interesting, you know? yeah. Um, but 
I think you, you need a king in this, in this worldview, in these societies, because you need to represent God, mm. the gods or mm-hmm. a God on earth, right? Like you need to know what you do. You, you, you got to know what you're doing and why. Life is hard. Life is too hard to live without the kind <laughs> of funding that you can get from some serious funding source, you know? Like there are some things that you don't really need to justify very deep down into the center of the earth, like which uh, show we're going to watch next on Netflix, for example. It could just be a matter of preference. But like you can't just talk about preference if you're talking about life and death and and war and who wields the power and wealth. You have to talk about something deeply rooted, right? And that's what a king offers, a sense of like connection with the divine and a reason for why things are like they are. Well, there's this very funny little story, funny, like interesting, I guess, little story in ancient Israel that um, early Americans used actually when they Mm -hmm. were trying to argue against the case for a king. Mm -hmm. But um, the story of Samuel where basically the people of Israel say, we want a king. Everybody else around us has a king. And Samuel says, if you get this king, he will enslave your, your, uh, children, yep. like hike up your taxes, yep. send your sons to war, yep. like yep. all this kind of stuff. I'm paraphrasing. No, it's a very good paraphrase. First Samuel eight. And basically, oh, good, good for you. Oh, yeah. um, basically oh, no, all that stuff happens. Right. But yep. they, they still say, yeah, but we still want one and give us one. And then they get this tall, handsome person who ends up being kind of a disaster as a monarch. But what I want to hear from you is Saul. I love Saul. I, I do too. He's such a tragic figure. He's a beautiful disaster. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I always (laughs) feel like he doesn't get a fair shake in the the text itself, but, Mm. um, it's, it's, it's very, was it really strange for Israel not to have a King? Like, could they have made it without one? Yeah. I I mean, maybe, you know, what's weird though about this is that there's an odd dynamic and the the Bible is profoundly ambivalent about kingship. You could Mm, say, I mm -hmm. think that that's a fair way to put the Bible's perspective on kingship. It's ambivalent because like Deuteronomy chapter 17, 18, somewhere around there, you have all these rules for like what it should be like when you have a King. And they're sometimes even appealed to as being particularly modern or forward thinking, like the King should be subject to the prophet. Mm, So not mm -hmm. just the King over the prophet, but you have a religious authority who's like telling the King what to do. And so you could have a model there for, you know, uh, Billy Graham coming and like advising the president. Or, oh you know, yeah, which like is that. there's a great scene with when Billy Graham comes and advises Elizabeth. But anyway, the Queen, going. I know. Yeah, okay, yeah, well, yeah. We should talk about that. But um, but then it's like you've got Moses, who's kind of like a king, let's say, uh, ish, and then you've got the Book of Judges, which is all about like how the whole world falls apart when no one's in charge, when there's no king in Israel, and everyone does whatever they want, which is something that. Is the book is explicit about like that do is, not do not do this. The problem <laughs> Bible's not like libertarian in that. Yeah, way. not really. And so, but then when then when this moment comes along, when the people are like, "Hey, can we have a king?" Then, then like Samuel is sad, and God's like, "Yeah, they've rejected me." Then they proceed to turn around and give people kings, and in fact, fall in love with one king of in, in of these in particular and his line, namely David. Right. So that's pro king, but it's also like anti king. It's pro and anti at the same time. Oh, listener, did you ever feel like you wanted something and didn't want it at the same time? It's it's a tra- it's tragic. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. That's the view toward kingship. Well, it's interesting because I mean, are there other ancient examples of societies who? did something else? Like, I don't even well, know about this. Era. Not really. No, I like you take like, I don't know. I'm just picking groups at random. Like all the ancient Mesopotamian groups had Kings that yeah. were, you know, considered to be pretty serious dudes. The Egyptians had their fair, their pharaonic thing, which was a little more intense because their Pharaoh is like an instantiation of God, you know, a part of the God on earth. Interesting. So that's helpful with that connection between being, you know, the king of the God, the Mesopotamians made it a little bit. There was one Mesopotamian King in particular named Naramsin who did actually claim to be a divinity, but that was pretty rare. 
Um, that was that was seen as a hubristic move yeah, on his yeah. part. But this idea that the king is connected to, to to the deity, I mean, why would he not be? You know, it would be chaotic to think that you'd have kings that were not like somehow chosen by the gods. Well, what's fascinating to me is that's why I, I to come back to the opening question, why mm. I don't know if I'd say yes, because that makes a certain sort of sense to me. Like mm. you can't necessarily, like a human being, so... Um, what what the Americans were uh, or European Americans of European descent, British mm-hmm. descent, mm-hmm. were rebelling against mm-hmm. in their early history and their founding was this idea, this theology, Christian Christianized theology of that, mm-hmm. especially like this idea that kind of crested in the Middle Ages um, that God had in fact ordained. Um, a particular bloodline mm-hmm. to rule and like a well, uh, like a God honoring society mm-hmm. was a society that like was ordered in that way. Like God's favor, you know, flows to the, sure. the monarch and then to the noble people and then eventually to like the normals, um, the the rest of the world. Right. So that like this idea, the divine right of Kings, like that has kick to it. Right. Sure. But Elizabeth is a very modern um, monarch mm. who has, no real power to like, you know, how do you, I guess I sort of think in terms of, of rules and enforcement, like mm-hmm. in the ancient world, if you take off the king or the queen, yeah. like you could pretty much die, right? Could like be that's, bad. and maybe everybody who you know and love or whatever. Um, but in the modern world, if you irritate the, the monarch, right. what, what do you get? Like, yeah. A, a sneer, a sneer. A yeah. sneer or like a cold stare. <laughs> right, right. Or you um, get maybe not invited to the biggest, fanciest the big gala dinner or whatever. Right. And so that's where I think like, is she even really like a monarch in the full sense of the word? And Philip, right. I mean, he's this person who has to, I can't even imagine what the conversations were in the mid 20th century around a man who's giving up his, I know. his very name you know, to right. like be subsumed into this, right. what is essentially just a, f- maybe not just a figure, but like the most prominent function that they have is to be symbols. Yes. No, that's right. And I think, I think in terms of, I mean, the, the Royal family in the UK is kind of like, you know, it's, a, it's a celebrity culture. You take your kind of like anger and your fear and your aspirations and you just kind of like cast it symbolically upon onto the wall as people. a shadow onto these people. I mean, that like why why are any of us obsessed with any of these people? Um they 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 do seem to wield a certain kind of power, but you're right. It's not it's not the kind of power like maybe they they used to do when the role of a monarchy would also be an active political role. I can't imagine, you know, what your daughters would do. They would probably they would they would be adorable royal family members but see then i could i don't think i could handle the pressure that it would get put on my children well they so my daughters they play this game which i sort of peek in on from time to time where like one of them is like the queen and then the (laughs) other one is like a mistreated servant by that queen and then they boss the other one around and i don't know what that's about flip the roles yeah it goes it can go either way usually the younger one will be the queen bossing around she seems like older one yeah Yeah. well and i think the older one gets to control much of what goes on so it's like a fun (laughs) role reversal or something i don't know that's really cute Well, okay. What about now? There, there are some great scenes in the Crown, yes. which I know I, I could imagine that you enjoy, where there are sort of like you get to you get to learn about the etiquette uh-huh. of the monarchy, yes. the do's and don'ts of 
what it is that you should do and shouldn't do. For instance, there's a particularly um, iconic scene where the Kennedys come visit. I love that. And just basically bungle the interaction. Gosh. President first, president first. Majesty. No curtsy. No curtsy. Mrs. Kennedy. Your Grace. Your Royal Highness, Mrs. Kennedy. Good evening, Your Royal Majesty. Oh, dear. Oh, for goodness sake. Mr. President. Mr. President. Your Grace. Did they not get the protocol sheet? Yes. You obviously didn't read it. Yes, well. Shall we? Ah, uh, Jackie. Where do you think she's going? Lord knows. I feel like that went wrong in about 10,000 different ways. I've seen worse, but I'm not sure when. <laughs> Please. Sorry, sir. Bloody shambles. I love that scene so much because, as you know, I'm really into ritual theory. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like baseline definition of how um, at least the, the theorists that I work with explain like what ritual theory is or what rituals are, is there are these behaviors or acts that have some sort of power exchange mm-hmm. within them. Mm-hmm. So like a ritualized act is an act wherein people recognize that there is some either creation or exchange of power happening. Mm-hmm. So British um, etiquette is like this exceedingly subtle form of ritualization. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, if you do the right thing, mm-hmm. you're going to, in some way, like gain some power for yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you do the wrong thing, right? But but from the American perspective, mm-hmm. it it makes almost no sense to me. I don't know. Like, did you did you feel that when you were watching? I love the Kennedy exchange because the Kennedys are like American royalty, right? But basically, they're Irish family, like who a generation before had been bootleggers. Mm-hmm. So like that's American royalty, right? That's the, that's America. <laughs> that's America. So- when I was, I, you know, my mind just got invaded by a random memory. At least it has an academic connection. I, oh, went, fun. I went to a conference overseas and it, there were a bunch of people from, from England there. And I had just read something online about the British distaste for shaking hands and how that's oh, such, or like Americans will not only shake hands, but go in for a bro hug and stuff like, Oh, right, right, right. Or thinking, like the elbow grab. Right. Just like all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine if the handshake never comes back after COVID. Right. I'm fine with it because it's a controlled interaction. Oh, right. That okay. says, okay, we're here. We did this. That's over now. Right. But, um, you know, my, I was at this international conference and, 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 and was in the UK and, uh, met, met a, a British scholar for the first time and yeah. thought, okay, great. This is my chance to not shake hands. I guess we'll both nod at each That's other. That's great. Well, he reaches out his hand to shake hands after I then didn't. Then he puts his hand down, but then I reach mine up. You know what I mean? You can picture it. Okay. Wait, wait, so. wait, wait. Before you go on, I feel like we could do a whole episode about how the Academy is one of the last bastions of this high boundary etiquette culture. Oh, sure. Because I know I have been in, I was just talking about this with somebody the other day, how I didn't know that um, if you get a chair, if you have a named chair, Mm -hmm. it comes with like a literal chair. A physical chair. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. You which get is the chair. apparently common so sit knowledge. In the chair. Well, I went into a fancy professor's office and I sat in that chair, but I wasn't paying <laughs> close attention. 
and he asked me to oh, leave the chair. Will you please not sit in my chair. And it felt a little bit like this interaction between mm. um, the Queen of England and the Queen of America, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy. Right. And it did not. It did not go well. Um, with the Americans. Well, you know, I mean, from an American perspective, you watch it and you just think, yeah, them's our people, you know, just bungling their way through, <laughs> you know, cause that's how it goes. I do. I think there is something beautiful about, th- about those ritualized interactions. I wish there were more because what it leaves you in this situation now for all of us is like when we do the day to day ritual of life and business, you never know what you're going to get. You could walk in the door. You got to be ready mm-hmm. for anything. Mm-hmm. It could be like you're doing ritual, like suddenly it's very formal or it could be very, you know, we just, we don't have a uniform ritual culture in America. Maybe we used to, but you know, surely this is one of the great stories of the 21st century is the splintering of any kind of common American culture. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because I know some of the, um, and they're well-founded critiques of etiquette and it's ritualized mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. is that it promotes like people of privilege yes. who who know the scripts, who understand like right. which kind of, what kind of language to use. Right. Um, and then it constrains and can be used as a form of domination. Totally. So of course, like that is, um, in fact, I think, what is it? Foucault who talked about how the Catholic church is in his mind, a superb instrument of power, right? right? Like, so all these ritualized acts are like a form of power and can thus like, crush people oh that's no true it's a very smart analysis i'm only saying for my own anxiety i'll be happy with anyone's anyone's ritual well, <laughs> well here's where like okay, somebody okay. pick one it doesn't have to be mine but i just want to know what to do well here's the funny thing about that okay so to prepare for this episode i kind of went down a rabbit hole and i watched i found this guy who is this guy he probably would hate being introduced this way mm-hmm. an etiquette expert mm. i love the crown but this scene it's the worst Oh, dear. Who, um, he literally on his YouTube page, he talks about how he makes tutorials for the socially less fortunate. <laughs> it's so snobby. I need to go to right? that. Uh, oh, tutorial. it's awesome. Hi, I highly recommend Weird Religionists. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was watching it and he, he analyzes the crown and there's some really funny things where he like picks apart this, this scene between Queen Elizabeth and, um, Jackie O or not Jackie O then. She yeah. was Jackie she's, K she's then, um, Jackie Kennedy to um, like they, they're having tea together and he picks it apart and explains what the things that they got wrong about the etiquette. Let's talk about the things on the table. The cake stands, the tiered cake stands are horrid and you would not see tiered cake stands in a private house. But one of the things is like, so then I started watching a bunch of his videos and one of his videos, he, he has this whole thing on table manners, like polite table manners. Mm-hmm. And he says something like, manners are a way they're not um, meant to draw attention to yourself. They're meant to be selfless. Mm. He says like you want to make things like welcoming to other people. So he goes through this thing about why you don't um, start eating until everyone has food because you want to show that like, it's important to you that everyone has food. And I was like, Oh, okay. So, cause I usually come on that one. I do that one. Yeah, I come down on the end of like being really skeptical and really irritated by yeah. etiquette in part because I come from a, a social class where I didn't know a lot right. of the, right. you know, right forms. But then I was like, okay, well, 
I can see now I'm feeling kind of ambivalent about it. You know what table etiquette has made me feel like throughout the years? This is kind of going back. I've uh-huh. sort of made the transition and become a professional adult. And I sort of know the rules, like the outside fork is for the salad. And, <laughs> right. You know, like, and to, you know, to cut with the knife in the, in the, um, in, in the right hand, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I felt the same way though. Like I grew up in a family where it was just like law of the jungle, like total, wild, <laughs> like no etiquette. And so when I would read something, I remember being in a, like a preparing for the professional world high school class reading about table etiquette and being like really transfixed by it. My oldest daughter is really transfixed by etiquette too. Oh, loves the idea of this, but it almost became, I think if if you're trying to move up class wise in the world, it can be a way to kind of pass as somebody who knows something. Oh yeah. That you, you wouldn't otherwise know well, to, to be a different person. Well, after I had gotten my PhD, but I was like in that liminal scary place where I didn't have a tenure track job. Oh, I yeah. waited tables at this fancy restaurant mm-hmm. in a fancy suburb nice. of Portland. And um, I remember this one night there was this very wealthy family who came in mm. and they had a prospective son-in-law. Like I could totally tell oh. that, that he was. I would have been gawking at that nonstop. So this is how I knew he was not from the same social class. They were all ordering steaks and he ordered his well done. Oh, So I had learned over time waiting tables at fancy restaurants yep. that that is not done not amongst done. the upper classes. Like right. even medium well is not a thing which I... Okay, I grew up having A1 on my steak. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So A1. A1 is the king of steak sauces, the one you want. Speaking of kings, but when's the last time you had A1? I don't know, but now I'm kind of craving it. It's been a long time. I could could totally eat a steak. Just slathered in A1 right now. It'd be so great. I know for a fact we have religious studies students, listeners. Yeah. For you all, like when you go to a fancy, this is a tip. Don't order well- steak if you're with like the fancies there you go because or you just say i don't care i'm gonna order it i am who i am but you got to be prepared for that reaction make your way up in the world probably our religious study student listeners are vegetarians and so this is an irrelevant probably probably well we're all like give me steak i'm just saying um the worst thing in this episode and this scene is the scone her majesty takes her knife and cuts into it You can tell from the scone, it's a very dry scone, probably produced the day before, dare I even say it, perhaps even shop-bought by Netflix, because there's no sort of beautiful suppleness to to the scone. It's incredibly hard and tough. Scones, as we know, if you have followed any of my work or know what's what, scones are broken into with the hands, not cut with a knife. Now, historically, we never use knives on bread or byproducts of bread, so scones in this instance. Uh, the etiquette of, I mean, why is this so important though to have a certain kind of etiquette around a king or a queen? Like why, like wouldn't it be a great gesture for a king or a queen just to be like, hey, be as casual as you want. I've got all this power and money. It's cool. Like just, it's fun. Like we treat our presidents that way sometimes, right? Like you just walk up to the president and sort of like give the president a fist bump or something. That's considered like the common touch that we want to see in our leaders. But um, here they're making a pretty big deal about approaching in the right way. Well, it's interesting because there's, there are a couple scenes in the crown that um, where you you understand what's a, a well documented th- factoid about Queen Elizabeth's life is that she does believe that God has. I mean, she doesn't. They don't follow the divine right of kings anymore. Like that's been abolished. But the idea that um, she she believes um, that God has made her 
like like that God has given her this important job mm-hmm. to sustain the nation in part through the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is a, I think that all those little like etiquette things must mm-hmm. fall under that belief. You know, like right. the reason why you don't want to make things too, too down to earth in part, I would imagine is because you're trying to like uphold this thing right. and all of without those little manners and like right. who wears what pin and right. who gets what tiara. Yep. Like they seem sort of silly if you don't look at it in like this with this grand, like long sense of history. I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to admit. I was just reading something recently about like Harvard, Harvard's undergrad and like this court case they've been going on on their own admission scandal and whether Ooh. they've been racist and their admission yeah. standards and all this kind of stuff. But the one thing like, you know, that's really hard for them to admit is like, well, by having by having all of these people apply, the whole point is that it's an elitist institution. It's an elite place, right? Like you need to be in order to have that chasm and to keep that value. It's based mm. on elitism. That's what it is. It's based on aspiration. It's based on what you want to have. And so it's probably it'd probably be tough to just like bald faced admit that that's what the ritual of etiquette is about around a monarch that it's about preserving that, like you said, if that's the theory of ritual, that it's about power, like that it's about that as opposed to, you know, no, it just harks, harkens back to a more genteel time when people were dead. Yeah. I'm sure there are all kinds of cover up answers, but that to me seems like the clear answer. Well, I read a really interesting article by a guy, um, by a, an American, I think he's an American religious historian um, at Wheaton who argued it, something kind of like that about um, Harry and Meghan Markle. Oh, Basically, he says, like, listen, the British monarchy, if you're not the queen or like in direct line of the throne, like basically you're just famous. You're just a celebrity. And he says, like, oh, yeah, the British tabloids, they hate Meghan Markle. There's tons of racist coverage and sexist coverage about her. Um, But he said, basically, she's probably the best thing to happen to the people who aren't in the direct line because an actor knows how to be famous without being royal Mm. and basically like once you get taken out of that direct line Mm. all the need for all of the like fancy etiquette and stuff kind of goes out the window because who is harry like i think he's sixth or seventh or something not exactly next up right yeah so i i don't know i kind of thought that was interesting Mm -hmm. now speaking of speaking of harry and william Mm -hmm. um so by the time people listen to this, the funeral of, of Prince Philip will have occurred. Mm-hmm. And the, the buzz, the buzz is about the fact that the family is now reuniting right oh, after yes. the, right after the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah. Interview. I wish and we could have done an episode. So, I mean, so the talk leading up to the funeral is all about how there's going to be like a, some distant cousin or somebody who's going to be standing physically between the brothers. Oh, yes in order to mark that separation. So this event is not only, you know, the funeral of a king, the funeral of a monarch is is obviously an important cultural moment in society and has been, um, but it's also a time when everybody gets to watch and gawk and, you know, um, eavesdrop essentially on this family drama. I, I'm really fascinated to see what happens with it because I don't know. I mean, there's... I. When when the Harry and Meghan thing came out, there are a lot of American religious historians. I don't know if Bible Twitter was doing anything like this, but history Twitter was going crazy because they were talking about how like 
about something about how this is a recall to the American Revolution because there was a lot of tea spilled and like referring to like the slang term for gossip. Um, Spill the like tea. Like spilling tea yes, yes, yes. and um, I can't remember. Like it's something like not since the American Revolution has this much tea. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, they were basically talking about it in revolutionary terms. Like- <laughs> Like that, <laughs> that we're looking for any news other than COVID. Like, please oh, yeah, just yeah, give us yeah. anything. But anyhow, I, I sort of wonder how this will be covered because in some ways you could see, I, I imagine this, maybe I'm just way too into like monarch gossip, mm-hmm. but I sort of think of this as like, there are two kind of matriarchs in, in Harry's life. There's the queen who is like matriarch of matriarchs, but then there's also his mother right? who was, cast out of of like the inner circle and i sort of imagine him choosing a different matriarch like that's he right. chooses his mother and her legacy well right and that's that must clearly be what he's looking to do with with megan and with his own family i i don't know i mean i sort of wonder if if the dokian reign like <laughs> would you would you stick it out or do you think you might I'd probably hate it after a couple of days. You know, I don't know that you'd like the the attention. Yeah, you're probably right. I'd have to I'd have to quit. I'm going Harry and Megan on this one. <laughs> USA. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. I love that we're normalizing weirdness. It's a compliment. It really is. For extras on subjects covered in this episode and other related jokes, don't forget to follow us on the socials and visit our website weirdreligion.com. We're doing our own production these days and some of our own musical and voice flourishes. Yes. Love it or die, but our official theme music is still, <laughs> as always, by Cassie Blum. And our artwork is by John Williams. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye.